I love that anthem. Our choirs, our music ministry team, there are so many who work so hard behind the scenes getting ready to lead us in worship, and we are so grateful for their ministry and uh, for Marty and Suzanne filling in today. Thank you guys so very much. Our scripture today will be coming from Psalm 51. <laughs> Psalm 51, while you're turning, I'll share with you a couple of things. One is, please keep Meredith Hinton in your prayers. She texted me early this morning and said, I woke up with a fever, not sure what's going on, but I'm going to miss the 930 service. She was going to be the worship leader there. And then she texted just a minute ago, confirmed it's the flu. So we uh, told her there are some things that we in the body of Christ like to share. There are other things we do not. <laughs> so stay home and I hope that she feels better. The second thing is many of you have been asking about a pilgrimage to the Holy Land and I share uh, pilgrimage and not just a, a trip, um, but it's a, <clears throat> it's a journey. And uh, we have been talking about putting a group together and uh, to go to the Holy Land. We're thinking somewhere maybe March or April of next year. It takes about a year to put everything together and to be able to do the sign-ups and to be able to plan and to think ahead. If that's something that you're interested in, we're going to be having an information session next Sunday afternoon about four o'clock. It does not mean you're committed if you show up. It just means you want to hear a little bit more about it. It's, it's a great opportunity to be able to uh, stand where Jesus stood. You never read the Bible the same way again once you have been there because you can see things. Uh, it's amazing to be standing where Jesus fed the multitudes with the loaves and fish, and then you hear they tried to make him king by force, and he slipped away to the hillside, and you turn around and you see the hillsides behind you, and you almost picture Jesus walking up through there. It's quite amazing. Going out on the Sea of Galilee, you go out on the boat, stop in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, read some scripture together, looking all around. Then some people will take the boat back, the rest of us walk. It's a great experience. <laughs> Glad you got that. It means you at least know part of it. Um, so if you're interested, that'll be next week. Will you pray with me? God, we're just so grateful for your love and grace and grateful for the privilege of studying your holy word. And now as I stand before these, your people, I pray that this would be your message and not my own through the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. There's an old Scottish saying that confession is good for the soul. And it may be. But David will help us understand it's not the easiest thing to do sometimes, to actually confess, come to the point where we're real and honest with God and even with ourselves. If you look back in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11, you, you see the story about David, David who was known as the greatest king in all of Israel, David who according to 1 Samuel 13 verse 14 is a man after God's own heart. David, great, mighty king, mighty man of God, and yet a man, just a man, a human being who messes up royally, pun intended. He makes some big mistakes. It's spring of the year, we're told in the scripture. That's the time when armies would go into battle. It's hard to fight during the wintertime when it's wet and, and the chariots and everything get hung up. But once it's springtime, that's when the battles would often occur and 
and the army of Israel is now in battle. But we're told that David had remained in Jerusalem. He gets up from the couch, we're told, stretches, goes out onto the rooftop, starts looking around. Ah, oh, it's, it's incredible. Jerusalem, the holy city. And he's the king. He's the king of Israel. And, and he looks around. All of this is his kingdom. As far as he can see, he is the king of all of this. But then he notices there's a beautiful woman who is on her rooftop bathing. And, and he ca she catches his eye. And he's taken with her. And, and, and so he, he gets word. And he finds out who, who, lives in that, who lives in that house. Who's the lady that lives in that house right over there? And he's told, that is the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. And David says, well, go get her and bring her to me. It's important that you hear that. Because that means David knew. David knew what he was doing. He knew when he called for her that she was another man's wife. It wasn't accidental. It takes away ignorance. It takes away the ability to go, oh, you're kidding, she was married? I didn't know if somebody had just told me. No. He knew. And he still called for her and being the king there in the palace, oh, he whined and dined and, and pretty soon he's with this beautiful woman by the name of Bathsheba. And later she sends the word back to the king. I'm with child. Oh no. What are we going to do? The media gets a hold of this and once it hits Facebook, I'm done. What am I going to do? And so you can just picture him walking around in the palace going, think, 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 think. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? And then it hits him. I know what I'm going to do. And so he sends word to, to Uriah's commanding officers. Do you know where Uriah is? He's in the army that's out fighting for David. He's in the very army fighting for the king while the king's with his wife. So he sends word to the commanding officers and says, have Uriah come home. Because his thought is, if I can just get him to come home, then when the child comes, nobody will know. So Uriah comes home. Comes and reports to David, here's what's happening. We're in battle here. We seem to be doing well. We're battling over here. We're struggling here, but we seem to be making progress. And he gives him an update. And then David says, well done. You deserve some R&R. &R. Go home. Go to your home. Eat food from your own table. Get a bath. Go lie in your own bed. Get a good night's rest. Enjoy being with your wife. And with your family, go home. You've earned this. Ah, oh, you've earned this. But there was a problem. Uriah had to be a man of integrity. I mean, of all the people, a man of integrity, a man of ethics, a man of morals, a leader, a true leader, because Uriah said, how can I go home? My guys, my unit is still out on the battlefield. What would it be like if I go home and, and I'm enjoying food at my table, I get to sleep in my bed, I enjoy the pleasure of my wife, when my guys, they're not at their homes, they're not eating food at their tables, they're not enjoying their family, they're, they're out on the battlefield. I can't do that. What kind of leader would I be if I did that? 
Wow, good question for David to have asked. So Uriah refuses. He stays outside the gate, but he won't go home. He won't go home. Word gets back to David. Uriah wouldn't go home. What are you going to do? Picture David. Oh, oh, man. Think. Think, 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 think. I know what I'll do. I know what I'll do. Plan B. Plan B. He writes a letter to Uriah's commanding officer. And in the letter, he says, Here, well, here's what I want you to do. I want you to put Uriah up to the front of the line and, and then push into battle. And when the battle gets going really heavy, pull everyone back except for Uriah. Don't tell Uriah. So Uriah will be killed. Wow. Talk about wanting to cover up your mess with a mess. But you want to know what else takes it to a whole new level? Who do you think David handed the letter to to take to the commanding officer? Uriah. When you go back, take this to your commanding officer. I mean, did you catch how cold that had to be? I mean, Uriah, this is a note for your commanding officer. Take this back when you go back to battle. And, and Uriah has no clue that the note that he is carrying is from the king telling his commanding officer to sabotage him and have him killed to cover up the fact that the king has been with his wife. So Uriah does what he's told to do. He takes the note. He hadn't read it, obviously. It's sealed with the king's seal. Hands it to the commanding officer. The plan is carried out. They go into battle. Uriah's up front. Everybody pulls back. Uriah's killed. Not only Uriah, read the story. Not only Uriah, but others along with him. Because our sin never just affects a few of us. It will affect others as well. So the word comes back. Uriah's dead. And David goes, And they were told that Bathsheba grieves for her husband, laments over his death. Wow. She must have actually loved him. So the deception continues because David then, after she's gone through her period of grief, takes her as his wife. Wonder if he told her, I'm the one that had your husband killed. I had him killed. But I had to. Wonder what she would have thought of him if she knew he had him killed. Finally, though, finally I fixed it. It's over. Scandal averted. It's done, or so he thought. Turn the page for Samuel, Second Samuel, rather, chapter twelve. Second Samuel twelve. The scripture says that God sent Nathan to David. It's important that you hear that. This is a God thing. God sent Nathan to David. Nathan goes up to the king and he says, Oh, king, 
I need to tell you what's happening in your kingdom. You will not believe this. This is a horrible thing that's happening in the kingdom. What's happening? Well, there's these two men. One of them, Sir King. One of them, he, he's rich. He has, he has flocks. He has, he has herds. I mean, he has everything. He seems to have a maid. But the other one, you're, the other one, Sir King, the, the other one, he, he has nothing. I mean, the man is poor. The man has little. He actually only has one lamb. One lamb. And that lamb has actually become like a pet to the family. I mean, the children grew up playing with it. And, and, and he treats that lamb as if it's one of his own kids. He loves the lamb. As a matter of fact, that lamb is so pampered by the family that, that when the man lies down at night to go to sleep, that lamb will come and lay down next to him and snuggle up next to him. It's, it's like one of the family. But you won't believe what happened, King. What happened? Well, the rich man had guests to show up. Company came, and, and the rich man, he, he didn't want to kill one of his own flock. He didn't want to kill one from his, his own property. So would you believe, Sir King, that, that he actually goes and, and he steals the lamb from that man, from that poor man, took his only lamb, the one that the children grew up playing with. They had named it, I'm sure. And he took that lamb, and would you believe he slaughtered it, and that's what he served to his guests? Oh, David's outraged. We're told he's outraged. Why? Well, you remember, David was a shepherd. When he was a kid, he was the shepherd boy. And David, oh, he becomes enraged. And he goes, you find me that man, for this man deserves to die. And then Nathan looks at him and said, Your Majesty, you are that man. You are that man. And then Nathan goes on to describe, God knows what you did with Bathsheba. I mean, here you are, the king of Israel with multiple wives and concubines and everything at your fingertips, and yet... You, you go into the home of someone who's serving in your own army and violate him and his wife. And then you, you try to cover it up. And when that didn't work, you have him killed. And then you take her as your wife so that, that you can cover it up. But hear the news. God knows. In 2 Samuel 12, verse 13, David says... I have sinned against the Lord. I sinned. You see, that's the challenge with sin. David got all tangled up in his sin, and, and the more he tried to cover it up, the worse that it got. I remember when I was growing up, and my parents would talk to us about lying and why lying was never a good idea, because they would tell us, you know, you tell this one lie, and then trying not to get caught, you tell a second lie to cover up the first lie, then you tell a third lie to cover up the second lie, and a fourth lie to cover up the third lie, but then by this point you can't remember what the first lie was, and pretty soon you're in a mess. Sin is like a spider web. I mean, once you get entangled in it, the more you try to maneuver around it, the more entangled you become. And David got in a mess. He thought he had covered it up, but here's the problem. No one else might have known, but he knew. You know, I may be able to fool you, 
but I can't fool me. We may be able to fool the people around us, but we can't fool ourselves. Our neighbors may think everything's awesome, but we know what happens inside. David knew. And it was eating him alive. I wonder how many times he looked at Bathsheba thinking, I wonder if she knew what she would do. The deception. The other problem was, not only did David know, God knew. I mean, we may be able to hide our sins from others, and we may, if we're really good, convince ourselves. But God knew. When you study the Gospel of John, one of the things that, that I love about John is he lets us know how God is able to see directly into our hearts. Jesus can cut right to the chase, right inside of us. I, I remember in John chapter 3 when Nicodemus comes up to Jesus at nighttime so as not to be seen, but, but Nicodemus comes up and, and wow, does he, does he try to be just so correct and polite when he goes, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Nobody can do the things you do unless God is with you. And, and Jesus says, yada, 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 here's the real deal. You need to be born again. I mean, right to the chase. I mean, cuts right through it. Thanks a lot for all the accolades, but the truth of the matter is, you're not in a relationship with God. That's where you need to be. And God knew what was going on in David, so David confesses, Psalm 51. And when you look in your Bibles at Psalm 51, many of them will have a note at the top of the psalm that says, and this psalm is in regard to David after Nathan confronted him about Bathsheba. It's the only time a, a name is, is actually given in the Psalms. But this one lets you know, hey, you want to know what the Psalm's about? Before you read the Psalm, before you pray the Psalm, it, it's, it's about when God confronted David through Nathan regarding what he did with Bathsheba. So David confesses. He says, have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sins. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. I mean, David just said my, my sin's ever before me because that means David knew. I mean, I... I may be able to fool everybody else, but man, it's always before me. It's, I look in the mirror and that's what I see. So he names his sin. I, wash me thoroughly. Cleanse me from my sin. Naming it. If, if you're a part of a recovery program or you've had any involvement in recovery programs, one of the things that, that you may recall is that, that the first step to recovery is admitting you have the problem. And the challenge for the church is for us to recognize that the church itself is a recovery program for all of us. The church is a recovery program for all of us. Paul tells us in Romans 3.23 that all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So it's a recovery program for all of us. And, and, and so David names it, naming it. So that now God can do something with it. He says, against you and you alone have I sinned and done that which is evil in your sight. And, and that doesn't mean that when we sin that it's, it's only against God, but, 
but if I sin against Cleon here, then, then the challenge of it is, is that not only have I offended him and I've sinned against him, but because I'm a Christian, I'm a child of God and he's a child of God, I've then sinned against God himself. Against you. You alone will have sinned and I've done that which is evil in your sight so that you're justified in your sentence and you're blameless when you pass judgment. In other words, God says, how do you plead? And the response is guilty. David said, I'm, I'm guilty. You're, you're truly justified. Indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner when my mother conceived me. You desire truth in the inward being. Therefore, teach me wisdom in my secret heart. I mean, let's cut to the chase and get to what's going on deep inside. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. If, if you look in your Bibles back to Numbers chapter 19, verse 18, or Leviticus chapter 14, verses 6 through 9, you'll see that, that one of the things that the people of God would often do would be to take the hyssop branch, dip it into water, and then flick it onto the congregation. It was, it was a way of cleansing. Purge me with hyssop means to take, take that branch and, and sprinkle that water upon me so that I can be cleansed of my sin. Cleanse me, God. Wash me, God. Let, let me hear the joy and gladness. Let the bones that, that you crush rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and and put a new and right spirit within me. We're in the season of Lent. We turn the colors to purple. Purple, a, a color of repentance as we walk with Jesus to the cross. And repentance, though, doesn't simply mean, I wish I hadn't done that. Repentance is where we turn and go, I want to be a different person now. I don't want to be that guy anymore. I don't want to be that lady anymore. I want to be different now. So create in me a clean heart. Put a new and a right spirit within me. Make me different. And then David panics. Verse 11, he says, Do not cast me away from your presence and, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Oh God, please don't leave me now. Don't leave me now. Remember, it was David who wrote in Psalm 23, the 23rd Psalm that we all love so dearly. It was David who said, in verse 4, And yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For thou art with me. You're, you're with me, God. Please, God, don't leave me now. The only way I can get through life is knowing you're with me. Please, do not take away your presence from me. But restore to me the joy of your salvation. Oh, that... That means we once had it. To restore it means it was, it was once there. I, you remember God when we were so close? I mean, remember that time when I was just a kid and we went up against the giant and, and you told me to, to go up against him by myself even though I was just a kid and, and all I had was a slingshot and five smooth stones but, but you were with me? Remember how, remember how tight we always were? I want to be tight with you again, God. I want to be tight with you again. People sometimes ask, why in the church do we not do rebaptisms? Why? Why are you baptized only once? Well, here's the reason. It's, it's what David's saying here is we, we're in a relationship with God. 
we leave, we may fall away. But, but God is still faithful. Why does God have to recommit to something that God's never broken? That's why we do reaffirmations on our part. We may then touch the water to our heads and go, remember that you're baptized. And, and we may reclaim our relationship with God. But God didn't break away from us. We broke away from God. So restore to me the joy of your salvation. You've never left me. And then he goes on. I'll skip down to verse 16. He says, For you have no delight in sacrifice. If I were to give burnt offerings, you would not be pleased. The sacrifice that's acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In other words, it's, it's not that, that God doesn't want David to worship. Those are acts of worship. But what he's saying is, is just showing up at church and just singing along with the hymns and dropping a little money in offering plate, that's, that's not what does it. It's the heart. It's the heart. Because we can't really worship if the heart's not there. And, and it's not really an offering if the heart's not there. The, the sacrifice acceptable to God is a, a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, then you will not despise. I mean, God is wanting us to be real and authentic and honest. Real and authentic and honest. One of the things we've, we're looking at as we go through the season of Lent is a series on getting real. Getting real. Get real with God. Get real with who we are. Get, we, we don't have time to, to play church. We're called to be the church. We don't have time to play Christian. We're called to be Christian. It's time to get real. Get real with God. Get real in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, the challenge of it is it's easy to read these stories and look at David and go, and he was a mess. But just like Nathan said to David, you're the guy, Nathan looks at us and goes, hey, that's you. I'm talking about you. We've all messed up. And many of us, we've tried to fix it on our own. And the more we try to cover up our messes, the more entangled in it we get. And we think we've got it covered up and that no one knows. But the problem is we know. We know. That's why David said, my sin's ever before me. And we know. We know. Thank God nobody else knows. But we know. And God knows. So if we know and God knows and we know that God knows what we know then why not name it and be real with it? If we already know that God knows what we know who are we trying to fool? We're not fooling God and we're not really good at fooling ourselves. So we name it Proverbs 28, verse 13. No one who conceals transgressions will prosper, but one who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. 1 John 1, verse 8. 
If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive our sins and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Psalm 32, another psalm of David. David says, Happy are those whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Happy are those to whom the Lord imputes no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. While I kept silence, David said, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. But then... I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not hide my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression before the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Many of us are longing for forgiveness. And here's the good news. No matter what you have done, it is not bigger than the grace of this cross. No matter what you have done, it is not bigger than the grace of this cross. And the scripture makes it so clear that the whole reason we have this cross is that your God so loved you and did not want you entangled in your mess to the point he was willing to die to get you out of it and to forgive you of your sin. Our role? To name it and to accept it. Will you pray with me? God, it is so easy for us to point fingers at David until we realize we are David. God, all of us have sinned. And many of us have tried to find some way of covering it up or fixing it or maybe just concealing it. The problem of it is we know. And we're never at peace because we know deep inside of us what others may not, but we know. And you know. You already know. You know every thought that we've had. You know every sin we've committed. So if we know and you know, can we talk about it? We name it, God. Examine our hearts and our lives. What is it that's standing between ourselves and you? We want to name what it is between us and someone else. And God, as we walk with Jesus back into Jerusalem, we pray that you would cleanse us. That you would create in us a new heart, O oh God, and put a new and right spirit within us. And that you would restore unto us the joy of your salvation. God, we name our sin. We ask for your grace. And we claim it in the name of your crucified Son.
Jesus Christ. Amen. Our altar, it's always open.